everyone. Welcome to another episode of the eLearning Africa podcast. I'm Rob Bember. This podcast is brought to you by eLearning Africa, the Pan-African network for ICT for education, training and skills development. Africa's home for ideas, innovation and sustainable solutions for education, training and skills development since 2005. In this episode of the podcast, I'm in conversation with Barbara Mosa Mercer. A bit overworked, but I think that's uh, <laughs> that's a sign of the times, right? Uh, yeah, and the poor computers are <laughs> strained to the max. In our conversation, Barbara spoke passionately of the importance of a human-centered approach to technological advancements and warned of the risk in pushing for more technology. She explains why she believes the digital divide is so serious and why the access argument is a facile one. We spoke of the real impact of the pandemic that it's having on the mental and emotional well-being of people, yes as a result of the coronavirus, but also because of how the world of work has changed. Barbara also shares about her work in Africa, specifically talking about higher education in forced displacement contexts and explains why it requires a utilitarian approach to education, a stance she would not ordinarily take. Barbara Mosa Mercer is Professor Emerita and founder of InZone a program of the University of Geneva which pioneers innovative approaches to higher education in communities affected by conflict and humanitarian crises with the ultimate goal of empowering people on the move stranded in transit countries. InZone gives special attention to refugees and asylum seekers stranded in fragile states but at the same time fosters an inclusive approach including people on the move more broadly as well as vulnerable host communities. Barbara is visiting professor at the University of Nairobi, engaged in strengthening African solutions that advance higher education in emergencies and currently coordinating the launch phase of the African Higher Education in Emergencies Network. Following her initial training as a conference interpreter, she pursued her studies in psycholinguistics and cognitive psychology. Her research has focused on the development of expertise in complex cognitive skills of bilinguals both from a cognitive psychology and a cognitive neuroscience perspective. These findings have been instrumental in informing the design and the development of student-centered multilingual digital learning environments in fragile contexts, which she has leveraged across several refugee camps in Africa and the Middle East. Taking us not too far back to the start of your career. And I'm always interested in how people land where they land to start with. So, you know, how it is that you came to be a conference interpreter, is that by mistake? Is it by accident? Is it fully intentional? Well, that's uh, indeed an interesting question that I, I haven't asked myself in a long time. Uh, but I think uh, at the time, it was actually a, uh, a decision uh, taken for convenience uh, and in a very traditional way where I thought, well, as a woman, you know, what, what kind of profession could you choose uh, that you could continue to carry out when you have a family and uh, you know, it would be freelancing and, uh, you know, you could use some of your skills. Uh, so that kind of led me into that, uh, into that direction. And, uh, well, uh, the rest is history. I've actually changed my view on, you know, what this profession offers. Uh, and I don't know whether you know that I still work as a professional conference interpreter. Not very much anymore. Um, but I still keep my hand in it. Uh, I think it's it's good for the brain. Uh, it's uh, it's incredibly fascinating to be on the front line of where knowledge is created and policies are uh, negotiated. And because I've now really reduced my work uh, to uh, one of the UN specialized uh, agencies, the International Labour Organization, it really merges extremely well with you know the rest of what i do so in a way i've come full circle 
but yes, I um, I just emerged from three weeks in Geneva again from the International Labour Conference, and we touched upon all all manner of things that are incredibly important in the new world that we live in now. And certainly very keen to get into a lot of the new world as we as we look at it going forward. But I want to stick with the patriarchal framework that you had considered. And I guess the question is, was it self-imposed to an extent? Did you feel like you had many options? But this was the option whether by virtue of where you found yourself upbringing society, what, what was the main driver behind thinking, well, I need to fulfill all of these roles of mother and have a career. that Right. Yeah, I think I was just at the beginning of that era, you know, where uh, women were beginning to question. But, you know, we weren't quite at a point yet where we could throw out the baby with the bathwater. We, we couldn't just, you know, ditch everything that was expected of us. But Yes, you know, I, I actually came from economics. I, uh, so I'm Austrian. Uh, I was born in Germany, raised in Austria. Uh, and Austria has a number of specialized secondary schools uh, that uh, last a little bit longer than your traditional secondary school, but also give you a professional license. So actually, um, I went to a specialized uh, secondary school uh, doing the baccalaureate in, uh, in economics and finance. Uh, so that's my background, <laughs> which, you know, stands me to very good use in preparing grant applications and uh, uh, monitoring and evaluation and all sorts of things. Uh, so every skill set, you know, I've ever acquired really is, is helpful still. And it also gave me a business license. So I actually was ready to open my own business and, you know, could do so. Um, but decided, okay, you know, I'll go and work uh, for a year, you know, earn my money to then go and study. Uh, and during that year, I think my resolve uh, really was strengthened to, no, uh, you're never, ever going to get anywhere as a woman. Uh, you know, you will s stay being a secretary for the rest of your life, uh, you know, unless you get out of here. And so after a year, I left. And I think, Little by little, you know, then it was just the, the you know, the, the early 70s. And, and I think, you know, the women's movement, you know, slowly began to, to um, yeah, to gather momentum. And I think I had a brother who was extremely active uh, politically and otherwise. And I think some of that rubbed off on his younger sister. Um, although I still wasn't quite as courageous as he was. So I, I think that's a little bit where, um, you know, where things were beginning to, to shape or get shaped. Yeah, the rest is, is uh, then basically looking at a fairly traditional academic career, you know, getting your PhD and doing the research. And, uh, but because it was in conference interpreting, there was always this, um, you know, one foot in a profession and the other foot in academe and marrying the two as the field of translation and interpreting studies was trying to, uh, to uh, develop uh, or have an academic reputation, which was difficult and continues to be difficult to this day, uh, because it's a multidisciplinary uh, kind of field. I think that that never ever pushed me to be a pure academic. I always had a very strong connection to reality. And I've always felt that if we're going to produce knowledge, it has to be useful for something. And so I was much more in the applied research or yeah, adopted the applied research orientation. Although in cognitive psychology, as you know, things uh, can be very, very laboratory oriented and uh yeah but then you know I always picked out those areas that I felt you know could benefit from a little push and I said well you know how can you work on ecological validity and laboratory research you know how can we make those results more uh policy relevant uh you know how can we change the working conditions of interpreters so yeah you you can see how uh, things evolved slowly but there was a, a yeah a certain uh, there's a certain rationale to it uh, in hindsight at least. And has it been? I want to use the word frustrating, but I also don't want to be leading. And I guess I've just done that uh, in your dealings with policymakers over the years and and having to interpret 
all of these various policies into various languages. And I would assume the benefit of psycholinguistics and cognitive psychology is it's deeper than the average Joe or Jane in the street who just hears language and whether, you know, automatically just hears the words for what they are. You're thinking on multiple layers beneath the surface. Is there, as far as these policymakers go and, and making policy at a think tank higher level, is it more frustrating for you because you can see so much further and deeper into what is needed on the ground because you have a better understanding? Do you believe you have a better understanding of what people are actually asking for and what they actually need? Yeah, and I'm th I, I do believe I, I continue to make myself somewhat unpopular um, because at this stage in my career, you know, I don't have to make a career anymore. I, I don't have to be careful. And I, I always make sure that whatever I, whatever I pinpoint, whatever I raise, uh, there is sufficient evidence uh, on which I can base it and reliable evidence and quality evidence. Uh, but yeah, I've, uh, if anything, I've become much more principled in it. And I think that has been further strengthened by my involvement in the humanitarian sector. Uh, I continue to think that it's a huge advantage that I don't have the background in development studies and wasn't trained as a humanitarian. Uh, I still approach the field from my own field of, of research and, and, you know, scientific background of psychology. Uh, and I really am quite intent on keeping that perspective. Uh, I think it's helpful. Uh, that uh, while you're acting within that sector, you are not a product of that sector, but you can continue to have that uh, external uh, view uh, and hopefully a more objective view, weighing you know the pros and cons uh, of of what what is possible and what is feasible. I, I think one of the incredible uh, advantages of being a conference interpreter at that level. Uh, and interpreting uh, all these, uh, you know, meetings in multilateral organizations and watching how, uh, you know, international policy is being developed and how it's negotiated. Um, I've, I've learned an incredible amount. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, passive learning because you're in it and you're actually interpreting it. But you do this, you know, over the years and something has to rub off. Uh, and uh, it, it clearly has rubbed off. It's really, really helped me, you know, work in, a, in the human, humanitarian sector that is made up of, you know, so many different clusters uh, that, uh, you know, how they relate to each other and how they don't relate and often led by, you know, UN agencies and how these agencies work. So knowing the internal uh, way of working of those uh, different agencies has really helped me on the one hand be more um, how shall I put it, uh, to be more uh, accommodating, because I know just how darn difficult it is uh, to uh, arrive at consensus, while at the same time also uh, looking for opportunities where you can really push, uh, and, uh, and also uh, taking certain risks where I tell myself, okay, it's up to here and no further. Yeah, we're not going. We're not going to go down that path. Uh, this is not acceptable. This is yeah. This this is counter. Uh, this counters values that you know I I uphold and principles that I uphold. And as a linguist, I think also making sure that the way you present things, you know, it's it's making people feel that yes, their opinions are respected. I may not agree with them and we may not be able to implement them and finding ways to compromise. And I think in all these negotiations, what you really, what you really learn is from the very best of chairs. And there have been female and male chairs in the UN system that I've seen at work that I am absolutely enamored with. Uh, it's a skill. It is really a skill to run the meeting. And it can make or break, uh, you know, a, a negotiation. It can make or break a deal, and it can make or break how 
your values are, uh, you know, what chance you have in getting your values accepted and uh, and really implementing and, and effecting change. So, yeah, I think that it's, it's, it's really important still to me. And every time I go into an international meeting, I, I always look out for, you know, what, what kind of tricks, what kind of strategy? Uh, and I think that's what's fascinating about the International Labour Organization, because it's the only organization in the UN system that has a tripartite membership. So you have the workers, the employers, and you have the governments. And you see, you know, the social contract uh, being negotiated and renegotiated. And, uh, you know, you have the, uh, yeah, the, the different partners having to grapple uh, with, uh, with issues and still arriving at compromise. And I think I've learned a great deal from absolutely remarkable leadership in, in those different groups, uh, watching them, how they strategize, because you interpret you know, each group separately, and then you go into the plenary and you see how the strategy plays out uh, and what works and what doesn't work. It's, it's, it's quite, quite fascinating. But again, you know, always opportunities to learn. I'm so glad you're, you're fresh, kind of out of another conference and you have your wealth of experience pre-COVID and now experience during COVID. So this is a, another multi-part question, but how would you frame the global challenge and then as specific as one can be on a, on a, on a bird, from a bird's eye view with Africa, Africa's challenges pre-COVID and how has that changed? Again, I'll lead with the question being exacerbated by COVID. Have you, have you seen this play out in these meetings, but also just from your personal vantage point with all of your experience uh, being at the forefront of these conversations, are you, are you noticing sizable changes in those conversations? Yes, I, I think it's it goes without saying that the pandemic uh, obviously has overshadowed just about every discussion. Uh, it doesn't matter what topic you pick up. It's always, uh, oh, well, now there is the pandemic and, you know, things have changed. And uh, clearly, well, at the ILO, uh, a great deal has been about uh you know, decent work, uh, unemployment, about the, the incredible changes that uh, workers in general now uh, are being pushed through uh, and just how many are being left behind. I, I think one of the uh, kind of the, the, the key reports that uh, had come out uh, over the last two years from the Future of Work Commission, which I had the privilege of interpreting on um, several meetings and actually led uh, ably by uh, Ramaphosa uh, at, at the ILO, uh, that, that report clearly outlined uh, the uh, importance of a human-centered approach. And I think it's, it's been that call for action. You know, we, 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 do, we do understand that technology is enabling uh, certain uh, ways of working. Uh, but you know we 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 cannot sell out to that uh, being the only approach and the only solution. And I I would like to you know create a link there between the work the the, the world as a whole or the, the the global perspective and how I see this for Africa. Uh, I think in many ways you know technology uh, Africa has been able to leapfrog. Uh, in many ways, and that's been really it's it's incredible advantage. You know, if they haven't even touched certain technologies uh, because they didn't need to, uh, and I think in in many ways they are um, they they are they perform at a at, at, at an incredibly high level uh, when it comes to you know technological innovations and the use of technology, and having lived in different countries in Europe and you know in the U.S. I I do have a, a certain basis of comparison. Uh, it, it is remarkable. However, I think it's also, um, I, I see a risk in that, uh, in as far as the push for more technology and AI, you know, being the latest call uh, to action, uh, more of that uh, crowds out uh, our our uh, the the need for us to not lose sight of the human beings that actually are using that technology, and I think increasingly human beings are being marginalized. Yeah, uh, and and there are so many contradictions in all of this. Yeah, the more technology we use, the fewer human beings we need to run certain things. 
and unemployment rises and people are forced you know to to uh to retool to uh you know to 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 be uh, up to date on all sorts of technologies and uh it's frustrating for them and they give up uh and their value as human beings is being undermined and i think i i, I would hope that uh on the african continent you know traditions and and and, and cultural traditions you know will you know, will will survive that push because the push is relentless, and uh, it's it's relentless, especially in development contexts. Yeah, so you know how 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 does the continent uh, manage to stand up to this? And I'm not, you know, an, an, an expert. I'm not a. I haven't studied political science and I haven't studied geography, so my knowledge of Africa comes from working in Africa and working with African institutions and working in refugee contexts. Uh, so again, it's not an academic background that I have, but you know, the, the, the way I see institutions function, especially academic institutions or the humanitarian context function, I, I'm, I'm very, very concerned uh, about losing sight of human beings. And I think we have the pandemic and yeah, it's the fourth wave now, but I would say almost overshadowing uh, is, you know, the, 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 the real impact on mental well-being uh, and emotional well-being of people. I mean, th there is a pandemic out there that, yes, people are talking about, uh, but we don't have the numbers yet. Uh, but the numbers, you know, even estimates, uh, conservative estimates would say that uh, more than 50% uh, of all people, uh, you know, are seriously affected mentally and emotionally by what is going on. And it's not just that you can't go outside or you are in quarantine or, you, you know, you can't travel. It, it's, it, or the fear of, you know, contracting, uh, contracting the illness. It's, it's about how, how the world of work has changed and people I work with, uh, you know, virtually, you know, we all, we all bemoan uh, at this point, the fact that we we have to meet virtually, uh, and just you know how our our computer screens are just completely uh, uh, awash with uh, with virtual meetings, and you know when when can we meet in person again? When can we have those conversations again? You know how how can we do that? And I I see kind of a, a dual development that uh, that I that that concerns me a great deal, and I would hope that. African culture and tradition of community, of being together, of working together, will hopefully be strong enough to counteract what is a highly individualistic uh, approach to, to getting things done. It certainly has been and felt like, you know, too much, too fast, too soon. Uh, sitting in South Africa, where I'm sitting, we're still trying to get over the the peak of the third wave, you know, and again, as you, we're anticipating the fourth, the, the level and degree to which this has disrupted lives on macro and micro and on just all levels, and you're absolutely spot on what this has done to people mentally in terms of their health and well-being uh, we haven't gotten anywhere close to grasping just the devastation that this has caused we see the the totality of the numbers in the deaths um or, or probably more telling the excess death figures that come through all of that to say again within the african context we've been kind of crying out for change for so long um for a better life for equality for health and services and water the climate crisis and it feels like it's all kind of just come to a head but not many solutions seemingly in sight right now as we're still in the weeds do you see many opportunities amidst all of these challenges where, where's your level of optimism and i ask this not knowing generally in life where you would fall on a kind of optimistic versus pessimistic scale well i i um I'd like to say that I, uh, no, I'm not an internal optimist. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, I, I do have, yeah, uh, I, I, I worry. Uh, I worry about certain developments and I've just outlined a little bit, you know, what I really worry about uh, for the African continent. Uh, I mean, I worry about that for the global North as well, but I think we're, <laughs> we're so far into, uh, into technology uh, being, 
you know, sold to us as a solution for just about everything uh, and anything. But I, I'm, I'm not very optimistic that we're going to be able to turn this around. I'm just hoping that Africa, uh, you know, can keep uh, its two feet on the ground uh, and be realistic about this. Because if that kind of approach is implemented on the continent, then indeed you're going to be leaving uh, the majority of the populations behind. Uh, it you know the the digital divide is already uh, you know fairly fairly um, fairly serious. Um, but you know asking ourselves why is that digital divide serious? Uh, it's serious because uh, not because so many people don't have access to connectivity. And for me, this is is a facile conclusion. Yeah, it's serious because we are we are basically selling this as the only solution. Uh, now, if we weren't selling technology as the only solution, we, you know, people wouldn't be left behind because we would be rethinking uh, about, well, how else can we integrate people? Uh, how else can, uh, you know, education work? Uh, how else can learning work? How else can everyone have access uh, to, to education? Uh, but, you know, all that I'm hearing is, well, uh, you know, we need to have more connectivity. Uh, we need to have more computers in, in, in the hands of people. Well, it, you're never ever going to cover everyone. Uh, you, you're not even going to go much beyond, you know, 60% perhaps uh, on the continent in terms of a working laptop that, you know, and, and, uh, and power supply in remote villages. So are you now saying, well, everyone has to move to cities uh, so that they can have connectivity and have a computer in their hands to learn? Uh, I, I think, you know, there are, there are, it's so short-sighted. Uh, and I, I would hope that the strengths of, uh, of, 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 you know, African cultures uh, in terms of uh, the, the communities and, 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 and lifestyles, yes, there is poverty and yes, there is shortage of this and yes, there is lack of water and yes, there is lack of, of, of health care systems. And yes, technology can alleviate some of these. But uh, these are not the only solutions. Uh, and I think we, we need to get young people to, to kind of not get um, totally wrapped up in technology is the only way we're gonna solve it. Uh, you know, how many pitches do we have about, you know, uh, technology solving this problem and that problem and every other problem? It, it, technology isn't, you know, the savior of everything. Uh, and, you know, this may not fit exactly into e-learning Africa now, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, education, when you go back into, um, uh, in, into kind of hallmark uh, treaties on, on education, especially in, con in the kinds of contexts that we are talking about for, for Africa, you know, the pedagogy of the oppressed, you know, Freire, and, and you know, this, this does not ride on technology, yeah? It, it rides on what we would call humanizing pedagogy. Uh, and for humanizing pedagogy, yes, technology can be very useful and, you know, we should use it whenever we can. Uh, but only to achieve the kinds of outcomes uh, that you know advances our well-being as a society, as uh, you know, brings peace and 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 uh, livelihoods to people. Um, so, for me, there there are there are too many voices pushing uh, for one tool that is going to solve everything. And I, I think it's, it's, it's a very single track type of thinking these days. And I can see the pandemic has, because we've all managed to do things, you know, with, you know, the kind of web conferencing technology platforms that we now have, and we've all had to learn to tool up fast. Uh, yes, it has helped us stay together and continue to work. In a crisis, it you know we we've all had to adjust very quickly, um, but you know there is a world of difference between kind of emergency remote teaching uh, and quality digital learning, uh, and I think that's for me the the essence of what I am concerned about, uh, and where I feel that in humanitarian contexts uh, there is because of the dearth of connectivity. <laughs> 
there is an immense opportunity to showcase that it's not all about technology. You know, here are ways uh, in which, you know, we can reach even the most marginalized uh, and, you know, where they can actually build solutions that, you know, can act kind of as reverse innovation. Well, let us show you. Uh, and they showed us, you know, they showed us during the pandemic just how good they were, uh, you know, how they found solutions, uh, how imaginative and creative they were. And I'm just worried that maybe, you know, what they were able to show us, they were the experts in the world. They were better than many, you know, in the global North about, you know, how to learn in these contexts. But, you know, the North has caught up. <laughs> and, <laughs> so and so I'm, I'm concerned, you know, that, that will not now be relegated again to the sidelines. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about some of those, those specific examples and, and your work as a visiting professor at the University of Nairobi and, and coordinating the launch phase of the African Higher Education and Emergencies Network. I mean, tell me about the network and the general concept of higher education in emergencies. Yes, yeah, so I, I um, you know, I've run networks before and you know been involved in their creation. Uh, this was uh, an invitation from a donor uh, that kind of surprised me. But uh, going back to the beginning of our conversations about principles and values, uh, when the donor said, "Well, you know, we would like for you to be involved in this." you know, to design this, but yes, you're associated with the university in the North. Uh, and if this design were to fly, you know, it, it would move to the South entirely. Uh, so being at the stage of my career that I was at, I knew I was going to be, uh, you know, retiring from the University of Geneva. Uh, I thought, hmm, yeah, this is a real good challenge. Uh, and I think the time is ripe. And I, I, I do think I've got some skills that I could, uh, I, I, I could probably at least uh, design uh, together with some other experts, we could design it. But the most important part was really having the incredible opportunity given by a, a donor with foresight, uh, who said, you know, we would like to see what Africa can do. Uh, and I said, well, you know, I'm a white woman coming from the north. <laughs> you know, am I the right person uh, to do this? Uh, so I, I did have my my questions about me being that person, but I also knew that uh, I had sufficient experience uh, on the continent uh, and a good network already, um, and that I wasn't necessarily seen as somebody coming from the north and imposing anything. Uh, so I, I, I did have that reputation already. Uh, so yeah, the design uh, phase was uh, fascinating. Created a lot of a lot of enthusiasm and energy. Came at a time uh, this was before you know the renewed announcement of camp closure in Kenya. Came at a time where yeah, solutions for for uh, forced displacement, you know, had had to be uh, had to be implemented. It was post the New York Declaration, the Comprehensive uh, Refugee Response Framework, the Global Compact. So there was a political environment uh, that had already been created that really allowed us to move forward much more quickly than we could have moved, uh, say, five years ago. Uh, so we're talking post 2016, 2018 now, uh, there was the World Humanitarian Summit, uh, there was all this talk about localization uh, and, you know, more power and more funding in the hands of locals. So I, I think we had a political um, uh, environment and context that uh, really facilitated uh, the setting up of such a network. Uh, and we had university actors who were uh, interested and who also felt that, yes, we would like to show what we can do. Uh, so there was this, you know, after, you know, decades of development where uh, there was always an imbalance, uh, you know, between who had the money and who had to say in development projects and, uh, you know, who was basically solicited. Uh, as enumerators in research projects, uh, you know, for whom was the knowledge production? Uh, and, and so I, I think that there was a certain feeling of, yes, you know, we actually should be able to showcase what we can do. 
And uh, so working with uh, an incredible group of, of people uh, was, uh, was really instrumental uh, in uh, designing the project together um, and focusing on those countries that produced the largest number of refugees and those that hosted the largest number of refugees in the beginning. Uh, the idea is that you know we we spread out over the over the continent, and we're doing this right now. Um, I can get into that in in a moment. And to make sure that we were a group uh, of of actors who were in agreement uh, with regard to the uh, importance of those on the ground having an important role to play in the design and in the co-design. Uh, so this is how we then kind of moved into the launch phase with a not a huge budget, but yes, we were able to, you know, retain the first donor and uh, obtain grants from a couple of other donors uh, to go into the launch phase, which will complete at the end of next year. And we wanted to be very straightforward and simple. We felt that we do not want to be everything to everyone. After you know all the years I'd spent in higher education and emergencies, I had come to the conclusion that higher education in an, a forced displacement context needs to put food on the table. It needs to lead to dignified livelihoods. Yeah, I am usually not, you know, a, a proponent of a utilitarian approach to higher education. I would not be. Uh, and I wouldn't be in a context in the North, but in those contexts, I have absolutely come to the conclusion that unless people can be self-reliant and put food on the table uh, and uh, get their, uh, their children to school, nothing is going to happen. So the network really focuses on employability through higher education. Uh, and uh, all these all these hours spent uh, in high-level meetings and policy discussions uh, also, um, you know, have convinced me uh, of the importance of keeping your outcomes clear to the point. And this is, you know, you, you cannot solve all the problems uh, in the world, uh, but, you know, if you have very clear outcomes that are succinctly stated, uh, you can measure them and you can convince others that you can actually reach them uh, and you know how much funding you ultimately need to, to reach them. So uh, this is where we are at. We, we did our market analysis uh, in refugee camps about you know, what are the areas uh, that are most likely going to provide jobs for refugees in the context that they're in. So we, we really were totally opposed uh, to including a strand of uh, what we would call a scholarship model that takes refugees out of their context, sends them somewhere off, uh, and they will obviously never come back. Uh, and this is now actively promoted uh, also by UNHCR as the alternative path to resettlement. Uh, you've just seen a glimpse of it at the Olympics as well. You know, you're an athlete, okay, you know, we'll offer you uh resettlement uh you know you can now go to to university uh in another country so we we did not we felt that the network needed to uh, uplift communities uh and not just individuals really going uh you know full embracing full full uh fully uh you know what in my mind, characterizes African cultures uh, and what I admire, and it's the community spirit. Yeah, and that, that's so diametrically opposed to the North and the West. You know, where it's individualism that counts, and you know, hoping that uh, you know, with these values, we are we are actually strengthening, uh, you know, traditional values that are absolutely essential and that you know have shown to work. Uh, because, uh, yeah, as the pandemic broke out, if it hadn't been for community spirit and community creativity and, uh, and uh, you know, getting things done, communities would have, you know, kind of, yeah, suffered greatly. Uh, yes, they have suffered, but they haven't suffered in the same way that everyone in the North predicted they would. 
so why didn't they? Because there was community. And how can you strengthen that? Not with an individualistic uh, approach. Yeah, you, ha you have to keep strengthening that. And that's what the network really does. Uh, yes, we have scholarships for students. Obviously, refugees are not paying for their education, but they have to give back to their communities. So we are just launching now the first uh, program uh, that the students themselves have designed. They went out, they analyzed the needs of their community. They came back with suggestions as to you know, how they can give back to their communities with the skill sets that they have acquired. Uh, so it's really uh, empowering people to design solutions uh, for themselves using their higher education skills uh, to design these solutions but also making it clear to them, yes, you are now somewhat privileged because you have a scholarship, but you need to work for it, yeah? Uh, the price is not resettlement, the price is actually strengthening your community. So the price is not, you know, for you as individual, uh, the price to pay is, you know, helping, helping the community. So that kind of characterizes the, the values of the, uh, of the higher education emergencies network that we hope to you know, continue to, um, uh, to, uh, yeah, to strengthen and to, to amplify across the continent. The more you keep talking and the more I keep thinking of the South African expression of Ubuntu, which I'm, yep. I don't know whether you're yeah, familiar with, I am because you are. And that feels like it's embedded in, in everything that you're trying to do. How, and I feel having now engaged you for the past little while that this might be a, considered a, a swear word, but connected to the aim with technology and digital learning in particular, the next obvious question is always scalability, right? How, how can we scale this? How do we spread this? So within your context and what, what you're doing, you mentioned doing market research as you went out with this project how do we make sure that this mushrooms and, and, and grows to the rest of the continent and, and beyond? Yes, it's, it's clearly, um, it's been a little bit uh, learning by doing uh, also, and you know, looking, looking at opportunities and grabbing them uh, when they present themselves. But I, I'm also convinced that opportunities don't just present themselves. Uh, your, your mindset identifies uh, what is relevant uh, to the implementation of your principles. Uh, and so we are selective in the way, you know, we approach uh, the world around us. Uh, you know, the moment you have an assignment to do all of a sudden, you, you see things that are related to your assignment everywhere, isn't it? So yeah, the psychologist in me obviously, <laughs> you know, operates on those principles and knows how they, uh, you know, how they can strengthen, uh, you know, the, 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 the impact of your work. So, uh, yeah, the idea was uh, that, you know, we would start in the Horn of Africa for the reasons that I'd mentioned, uh, and that we would then, uh, you know, move uh, uh, mostly into West Africa uh, to, to, to cover the French uh, speaking part. And uh, yeah, clearly that would not be a big problem for me having worked in the French speaking university for over 30 years. So that, that, that was fine. Uh, and yes, there were, you know, still some, some, uh, some linkages that, uh, you know, we thought we would explore uh, and then, you know, moving further south. Well, the development of the network actually, uh, A, it has immediately uh, given us this incredible opportunity to work with the African Digital University Network out of Stellenbosch University. So that was already a, a huge uh, advantage and they really have um, put together a, a, a wonderful program on uh, quality digital learning, uh, digital pedagogy uh, in fragile contexts and headed as a working group. So already, uh, you know, we are in with that network and I think that kind of led me to the idea that why don't, rather than looking at individual member universities that would implement uh, diploma programs, which continues to be very important, why don't we look at other African networks that already exist? So rather than uh, you know, growing our footprint uh, one by one and going through the negotiations one by one, why don't we link up with other networks? 
and I think this is also how uh, the connection uh, with Rebecca came about. Uh, I mean, I was aware and I participated in a couple of e-learning Africa conferences. Uh, so I, I, I was obviously very, very much aware, but I thought, let's grow by linking up with other networks that are relevant to the kinds of diplomas that we run. So, and indeed, the first network that we, we have already linked up with is the Education for Sustainable Development uh, in Africa Network, uh, United Nations University Initiative. Uh, the next one that we are uh, discussing with now is uh, the Peri Peri U Network, which focuses on disaster risk management. So also very relevant, but brings 12 universities uh, so once we really connect, all of a sudden, you know, we're, there are 12 more and, you know, we can then uh, identify diplomas that, uh, you know, would contribute again in the refugee context in other parts of Africa. So that's a little bit uh, has become our growth uh, or our, yeah, our, our growth pattern, so to speak. And uh, it, it also highlights uh, the areas on which we focus. Uh, so disaster preparedness and disaster risk management is terribly relevant, as is teacher uh, education, uh, as is multilingual communication. Uh, it's surprising, but it's true. It is indeed needed. Um, so that's that's how we, we, we see our growth. I must say I've been a little bit surprised. Uh, research wasn't one of our key outcomes that we, uh, you know, feature. Uh, but that is actually where we've had a lot of solicitation over the last three months. And, uh, you know, all, already um, implemented a small pilot study, uh, all related to the role of refugees. Uh, in this case, it was the role of uh, refugees in sustainable urban development. Uh, so we started with a small pilot study. Um, we just uh, acquired a grant uh, from the UK Arts and Humanities Research Council on peace building uh, and, uh, and, and the skill sets and the arts uh, that, uh, that we're also implementing in, in two contexts, uh, one in, in Kenya, in Kakuma, the other one in, uh, for the Tigray response. So showcasing, you know, how specific approaches can uh, can lead to uh, to to better uh, peace building, um, better quality peace building, sustainable peace building. So more research is actually coming our way, and while that is a bit surprising, I think it's going to have to change a little bit of the way you know we're seeing our role, as you know, as elevating those who are students uh, in uh, under the umbrella of the uh, of the African higher education emergencies network but elevating their their skill sets uh, and making sure that they are the drivers in knowledge production uh, and that they are the ones who identify the knowledge gaps that is not somebody in the north who is identifying a knowledge gap and then doing the research and uh, basically not returning the, the results to the communities on which they researched, uh, but really changing, changing the pattern, moving, uh, moving the you know the the drive, well, basically empowering the drivers and looking at. At, at research ethics in these fragile contexts that are that are really uh, sound uh, and uh, make sure that yes livelihoods can be created so a number of the students already are earning money that way um, but we also make sure that they are not just making money as enumerators that they are indeed intimately involved in uh, in, in in identifying the research questions and also in participatory methods of, uh, of of knowledge production, and so vitally important that they are at the forefront in determining the what. Right, it's we're, we're so obsessed of of how we teach yeah. and the, the the platform, the medium that's used, and and forgetting about that all important what. I mean, looking at the UN's um, IPCC report this week that had 
you know, all, all the very appropriately so bold, scary uh, headlines. The, there was one or two stats that, that, you know, the typical headline grabbing stuff of how each of the past four decades has been successively warmer than any that preceded it. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. It is headline grabbing and rightfully so. And what that ultimately means again, in terms of more and more refugees, uh, people being displaced because of conditions that are just not livable, like we spoke about, you know, access to healthcare, lack of water. Is there a particular dominant uh, profile in terms of the, the average student that comes to you with an age or gender bias or? I think there there are a couple of um, couple of things I can say about that, and it is really work in progress. It's these are tough uh, tough issues to uh, to grapple with uh, because we're still dealing with government regulations that uh, are not adapted uh, to a world in migration. Uh, so uh, while there are, uh, you know, declarations and inst international instruments and national uh, that uh, governments have signed up to, um, but there's obviously a huge gap between having signed and hopefully also ratified uh, and actually implementing and, uh, you know, integrating it in, integrating it into national law. And even if it's integrated into national law, it's still, you know, it's a long way uh, to, to an actual implementation process. So for right now, and basically because we focused on the Horn of Africa uh, and mostly Kenyan institutions right now are offering those diplomas, uh, these students need to meet the requirements of uh, the Commission for University Education uh, to which all the universities in Kenya are accountable. Uh, so their hands are a little bit tied as well. Um, but we, we, we are working on, on a piece. Uh, I've been working on a piece actually for two or three years already on, um, on uh, compromise solutions. Uh, in a refugee context, uh, for example, where you cannot uh, verify the authenticity of a document that a refugee brings without actually contacting uh, his country of origin or her country of origin. But that, however, uh, it runs counter to the, to the 1951 Refugee Convention because it would mean exposing the um, geographical location of the refugee to the country that he, he or she fled. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're, coming, we're coming up against, you know, certain legal uh, contradictions uh, that, you know, we're hoping we can push uh, on and say, well, look, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it. Uh, you know, you, there's got to be a compromise. You cannot violate the convention. Uh, you know, what kind of compromise solution could we find? I think we, our students are mostly between the ages, I would say, 22 and 40. And we still have a long way to go on uh, making our gender quota. Uh, we, we really do. Uh, it is, it's, I think women are, are really, really uh, disadvantaged uh, due to those regulations that even if they followed the Kenyan secondary school curriculum and they did get their secondary school leaving certificate, uh, their grades are just not uh, you know, good enough to meet the requirements of the universities and the universities need to move a little bit. I mean, I've had some success in the past on saying, well, could we admit uh, you know, a female applicant with a D plus rather than you know, asking for the C minus as a minimum. And, you know, uh, since we have the, you know, since we have the, the, the scholarship available, we could make it contingent on uh, the candidate really showing to us uh, during the first term uh, that she is actually, uh, you know, able to follow the curriculum and can prove to us that she gets grades that are good enough to uh, to keep her on. So I, I found some solutions uh, that can work. Uh, it's now, you know, developing those solutions into policy uh, that, uh, you know, that's where we need to work with the ministries of education um, because it's it's not enough to work with the universities because as I said, they they basically have to implement what the ministries are, are uh, what's national policy. 
I've kept you long enough, but I do want to ask before I let you go, what, what is the motivation? Um, to me, uh, the motivation to work in these contexts was really an intellectual one to begin with. And, you know, coming from the learning sciences and having spent my research life studying expertise and how people develop expertise in different areas and the focus was obviously on 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 interpreting what 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 I asked myself was well how do people learn in those contexts so what 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 is possible uh and how can they learn and how do they overcome uh you know those uh those challenges and what how can we how can we develop uh, pedagogical approaches that include technology, because it was clear from the beginning that without technology, it wasn't going to work, uh, that there had to be, you know, a technological component to it uh, when, whenever that was feasible. And really studying, uh, studying how, um, how people in those contexts, what motivates them to learn. Uh, and that hasn't left me. I, I still, well, I've gone beyond that, obviously. Um, haven't been able to do laboratory style studies on how people learn, you know, the kinds of uh, research projects I was involved in, in cognitive neuroscience and looking at MRIs. No, you can't do that uh, in, in a refugee camp. <laughs> Obviously, it's not possible. Um, but, you know, we, 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 are, we are gathering, uh, we're gathering more information about how people learn and what pedagogical approaches really develop um, develop resilient uh, and motivated uh, human beings. Uh, and that's for us really, you know, what, what counts most, you know, that we have a, a holistic approach to this. Uh, and we've just released our integrative social emotional learning uh, concept, uh, which brings together the sports and the arts and engineering. No, this is not your Harvard model. Uh, of social emotional learning, but uh, hey, sports is incredibly important for youth. Uh, develops all manner of skills uh, that uh, you know, from team uh, work to uh, uh, to just you know, well-being, uh, physical well-being. The arts, you know, in Africa, do I need to say anything about that? No, the continent is just awash in, you know, incredibly impressive artistic, uh, um, you know, examples. And engineering, yeah, you, you, you need to find solutions where you are. And I think the basic concepts of engineering are within reach of everyone, even if you're not technically minded. So, um, so that's how, uh, how I, I, I feel, uh, you know, I continue to draw on my psychology background uh, in, in questioning approaches uh, in, for the continent in adapting them. Um, so when we talk about sports in Kenya, yeah, running is a national pastime, right? Uh, <laughs> well, okay, you know, I have to admit, you know, I'm a long distance runner. So <laughs> it's also something, you know, that speaks to me. Uh, and I do occasionally still uh, get to train uh, in uh, in a running camp in Kenya. So I, I, I have a small group there and I, I end up uh, doing some altitude training there and I still run ultra races. So <laughs> it's something that really binds me, you know, I think with the Kenyan culture. Culture, especially in you know the East African culture in general, uh, so I, yeah, I think very highly of sports. Uh, uh, but you know, I've seen just incredible uh, contributions in the arts, and I think we need to draw on what the continent's strengths are, and not constantly emphasize what its weaknesses are. Uh, and I'm I'm really tired of that talk about you know what, uh, even at the beginning of the pandemic you know all these headlines I'm sure you've seen them you know how the continent uh, none of that happened right if you look at the per capita uh, yeah. uh, I'm sorry and still it is not being properly advertised it's not properly yeah. reflected continue you know we, we are being constantly uh, brainwashed with this negative uh, you know view of the, the the continent and how they need our help and 
it's I, I think that's something that I find very very disconcerting and, and frustrating often but we are hoping that you know with our network you know we can you know bring examples and showcase uh, that uh, this is this is not true. Uh, and, you know, we can show you that actually there is incredible capacity. There is a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, and uh, yes, not everything, everything works like clockwork. Well, nor does it work like clockwork anywhere else. So I think, you know, we're good. Well, the sooner we get kids, young and old, back out into the playing fields and get you back out onto the open road <laughs> running, uh, the better for all of us. This has been a delight. You've been so generous with your time, and I can only apologize for subjecting you to another virtual call. Uh, but no worries. Uh, I'm sure this is going to be of great value to the eLearning Africa uh, audience. Uh, Barbara, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Rob. It was a pleasure talking to you and thanks for your, you know, your questions. And yeah, every question also helps me also reflect and connect some dots. Many thanks to Barbara for her time and thanks to you too for listening. If you've enjoyed our time together, please rate and subscribe to the podcast and share it widely. For more information on the courses, webinars, and virtual events that eLearning Africa has available, please visit elearning-africa.com.